Welcome to Are We There Yet? Transport into the Future. This is a series of programs that look at current issues and developments and what they mean for the transport we need, we want and what we can supply in the future. These programs are written and presented by David Brown. There can be little argument that Dr Max Lay is one of the most revered engineers in Australia. In a long career, he has held positions in business and government and not only has received many awards, but has actually had an award named after him. He has just published another book, The Harnessing of Power, How 19th Century Transport Innovators Transformed the Way the World Operates. I was fortunate to catch up with him at the RACV building in Victoria, of which, when he was president of that association, he had a major impact in its redevelopment. Max, you, your work and career focus very much on, say, the second half of the 20th century and into the uh, 21st. But you said you had a realisation about the 19th century, uh, an epiphany. Yes, I was asked to write a, at the end of the 20th century, I was asked to write a, a, for an International Roads Congress a paper on roads in the 20th century, transport in the 20th century, to a big meeting in Paris. And I, I gave the talk, and I, I think I was in the hotel room before the talk, and I was thinking, well, how do I introduce the talk? Because all the things, the real change things that happened in the 19th century, and I was just talking about implementing them in the 20th century. Mm. And I knew very little about the 19th century. I thought, I'm a bit of a fraud here. I spent, <laughs> spent some time looking at how these things came about, and that was my epiphany. Uh, I, I was going to use the word road to Damascus, but I think that <laughs> yeah. that I might be a cheap pun. Or yeah, I didn't meet St Paul or anyone else. <laughs> it was just a, a realisation in my head that I didn't know nearly as much as I should have known. And, and someone said you don't understand, get the exact phrase, but unless you know the history of something, you don't understand it. And that's true in my mind. Well, C.S. Lewis said that the researcher had experienced a, a range of times because you had read history. That's right, yeah. Whereas now, at the moment, we're getting bombarded with yeah. short-term... And we'll come to that because it is an understanding of it. You said that you didn't write this as a historian with backgrounds in economics, but you wrote it as an engineer. What does an engineer bring to this? I think an engineer is interested in in the what the A, the B, you know, what if, if B happened, what what was there at A causing B to happen, the cause and effect, mm. and the, the the physical causes and effect, and and humans are part of that process. But but as an engineer, I think you focus on how did this event come about? Not only because X and Y were there and B was prime minister, but what were the physical things that made it possible? And I think the physical things too is that. It is not just how do you build something, but what's its performance? Yes, yes. What, you know, we can say, oh, a train. Well, what does a train really mean in terms of time and other factors? And what I discovered in writing the book, one of the key points of the book is the people who invented these things had no idea of the performance <laughs> of what they were going to invent. Okay. They had absolutely no idea. And, and Carl Benz, who could rightly be called the inventor of the motor car, one of the two, he didn't think people should drive cars at more than about 20 miles an hour. 
and he didn't think anyone would ever be killed by a car because they wouldn't go past them. Mm. He didn't think pneumatic tyres were a good idea because they'd get punctured and it's better to have drive slowly on solid tyres. The other co invented a car, um, uh, Daimler, uh, he, he thought that uh, engines were better for boats and aeroplanes and people, he built a few cars to keep the, his business going, but that was not the future of, <laughs> of his motors. Got that wrong. Got that wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of early philosophers had ideas which were never tested. And, you know, I think um, Aristotle or something thought bees had not eight legs or something. Yeah. And, and for centuries, it was never tested. An engineer can often then test what is almost myth in, in our world. And it was one of the famous stories from my background in the steel industry was in the, again, in the 19th century, people thought when iron broke, it had crystallised because they looked at the fractured surface and there were these little shiny crystal things. As soon as one person got a, a, a microscopic lens and said, hey, these are not crystals, these are fracture surfaces. <laughs> and that was like in, in 1850. And in 1950, people were still talking about the steel had failed because it had crystallised. A hundred years later, despite mm. the microscope and despite people realising that iron was one big crystal, we still had this misconception hmm. because people liked the the idea <laughs> they were engineers they didn't want to have a look and say hey let's have a look at that thing hmm. it, it does sometimes take a long time we say oh we invented the wheel but i think your book you know harnessing of power the harnessing of power yes. talks that well we had the wheel for a while but gee we had to do some other things to make the most use of it yes and and i think uh uh, one example people don't think much about is one of the technologies behind the, the car and the train was the watch. So for a couple of hundred years before people had built these incredible mechanisms with cogs and, and ratchets and everything going whizzing around faster than the eye could see the second thing. And that was a tech, much of the technology that made it possible to work the valves on, on steam engines and motor cars was people who had and Benz is one of them who worked at watches and all of a sudden translated in 100 times bigger. The watch also was our more passion for time for, yes. and, and that would have come into everything from railways to, oh, to other forms of transport. More importantly so because before the train people every taking England every town had its own time in a sense you know, they, mm. Midday was when the sun was on top, but by and large it didn't matter much because it took a day to travel from town to town. And, and when the coachman got in on the coast stagecoach, he'd blow his horn and say, oh, that's the midday stagecoach of midday, you know. <laughs> and when the trains came, of course, all of a sudden the train was travelling at 100 miles an hour and, and it was important to have a proper clock. And so the train drivers had to have a clock and that brought in the... The Greenwich Mean Time idea was firstly settled by having one time for the trains. Um, that's where it all started. Yeah. But there are little things that have to develop. I think, why do we use oxen much more than uh, it took a long time before we used horses? Oh, and it, uh, it's easy for an engineer because the power output of an ox is much greater than the power output of a horse. So if you measure in terms of power, 
it's obviously one ox, just like you need a big steam engine rather than a, a horse. Yeah. Mm. If you want to, power only explains part of the issues involved. Mm. So that's the and the ox, the ox was uh, could be castrated easily, and that made a, a, a good animal to use because you cut its testicles off, and it didn't it did what you wanted. And it had shoulders that you could. Yeah, ha- it had big shoulders that you could just droop a, a, a bit of leather around. Whereas a horse, you've got to be. I was brought up on a farm, so I remember all this stuff. <laughs> you know, a horse, you've got to be careful. You don't uh, hamper its windpipe with the thing that goes around its neck. Mm. Much harder. And some some societies, the, the Celts could could harness horses back in before Roman times, but. Some European societies was like seventeen hundred thousand years later because they could do horse harnesses the way the Celts could do, mm-hmm. um, and it's just still stirrups. So I've been stirrups were one of the big inventions of mankind because they let warriors ride horses before the stirrup. You couldn't do much damage on a horse because you had to hang on to the horse. But with stirrups, you could hold a spear in one hand and a sword in the other. And, and slash a few heads off, you know. Well, 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 military has had a big impact yeah, on transport. Well, we might come to that too, but we, we take uh, stereotypes like the Romans and the road. Now, they had the strategy of the corridor, yet the quality of the road um, suffered, and perhaps it wasn't until 1800s. I, uh, I think in Macadam and that, that really started to do that other engineering thing, which was the surface. I should uh, interrupt you there and say... I'm, the book I'm writing at the moment is a history of pavements, <laughs> so don't get me started on this. But, but the Roman roads were built because the, there was no uh, the area around Rome wasn't wasn't you know wasn't a great part of the agricultural world. It was subsistence farming, a lot of it, and the Romans made all their money by conquering other peoples and bringing the booty back. So they had to have the roads to send the armies out and to bring the tax revenue back. That was the whole. And if you so didn't have a good road system, you didn't have any money, and that was and that was a driving force. Now, when the Romans collapsed, no one had that motivation anymore. In fact, villagers wanted to to pour. They did pour, uh, tear up the roads so that the Danes and the Vikings and others couldn't come up and rape and pillage their villages. <coughs> so, in the, in the dark ages, there was a, a negative attitude towards the one sort of Roman roads. And, and and then in the Middle Ages, there was a legend in England that it was Queen Brunhilde that built the roads, some mythical queen. They'd forgotten that the Romans even had anything to do with their roads. <laughs> they didn't have memory sticks to... No, no, no. <laughs> But then, then an engineer like McAdam and that... Uh, McAdam got... wasn't an engineer. I oh, wasn't he? <laughs> Go ahead, ask your question. <laughs> well, McAdam, uh, but he had an engineering mind, should I say that? that, that he, he McAdam had two great, I mean, Bank had a wonderful innovator. He had two things going for him. One, he was a good businessman, so he, and he'd started, he'd, he was born in Scotland and went to New York to work on a family business in New York as a treasurer of the business, came back and uh, made a few bad investments in Scotland and went down to Bristol to run a, a, a Navy uh, supply company, I think it was. But in travelling around, he saw that the roads were, were terrible and he saw that the, the way they were making them was even 
making it even worse rather than better and uh, <clears throat> he saw that a few people had done some, some smart things with breaking small pieces of stone and McCann's big innovation was to say that you know, if you have all these bits of stone in the ground you make a good road you don't need to build elaborate walls and there's a lot of unemployment around I can give women and children and, and pensioners and cripples little stools and I can sit beside the road and I can break up the big stones and make the road impassable to little stones and now you've got a perfect road and let me by the way let me run that as a turnpike and I'll do it for you for nothing and I'll just take the revenue from the turnpike as the transurban of the, the transurban, <laughs> he was the transurban but he, I mean he, he was a big technical innovator but it came from being observant and yes. not being bound up by all the, the myths one of the big English myths before McAdam was that God made soil to be part of the world and if when the road got dumped it was swampy stuff you had to put natural material back uh, in in it's hard to explain mm. the philosophy but but yes but it was driven by things other than uh, just yes. simple observance which ought to be the fundamental of engineering I, I was talking to a planner the other day sometimes engineers just go for standards but the problem of the standards is it sometimes doesn't have context it doesn't it, which someone can be a little bit you know lateral yeah. in in bringing that up oh yes that's right you have to have and McAdam's standard was how do you measure how big this how small the stone has to be they had some scales and things, but he said because he was employing cripples and women and children, if you can't put it in your mouth, it's not small enough. <laughs> so I had the little hammers, tip, can you put it in your mouth? No? All right, break it up again. The thing that was happening probably from the 1600s on, of course, was shipping that, as you said, was and the East India companies. Yep. And as you said, that was opening up a much broader market. Now, the thing about shipping was it wasn't quick, uh, but it carried load. What we often think about just moving people at speed, yet carrying load is one of the key transport parameters. And the great thing about the ship is you can put as much load as you like on it. It just sinks a bit deep in the water. So why do you make the sides of the ship high enough? It's got no load limits mm. and the difficulty with the ship is if you, if, you, if you go to deep sea port that's fine you can load and unload and and the fact that one of the examples from the 19th century it was taking as long to, and, and the big industry in England at the beginning of the 19th century was the cotton industry mm. they were bringing cotton from uh, the new colonies in America to Liverpool mainly was taking as long to get the cotton from liver from the docks near Liverpool to the cotton mills in Manchester, which is ten miles or something, as it took to get them across the Atlantic. Good. So the ships were travelling. The ships ships didn't go much faster than walking pace, but they at least moved. And so that, that was the one of the big motivations for the first railways was to get to move the cotton from the ports, the deep sea ports. Um, to the, the to cotton mill. That chain is as strong as its weakest link. Yes. yes. And, and so that would have pushed 
land transport. Uh, and I think you talked about that in terms of coal and, and it made the coal cheaper. And, and uh, that was very, the whole business was very incestuous as well. I mean, Britain, because it had shipping, it was a great trade boom. Uh, and the Brits were different to the rest of Europe because uh, their government, they had a new, new centre government who were very laissez-faire. And they said, you know, as long as you make a profit, who cares, you know. Whereas the French had got very regulated with, with the revolution and Napoleon and stuff. And the British just said, oh, effectively said free trade, you know, make a buck and, and we'll give you a knighthood sort of thing. And so, um, and then uh, the Brits were selling, they invented the steam, the steam motor and, and the steam engine. And those things were also being exported, so they were exporting steam, steam ships and steam engines and it was all, the first half of the 19th century was a British trade victory after Waterloo and then they, they won on land and they won the mm. trade victories. I think the British East India Company was known as the Honourable Bruce, right. but not because of how they acted, but because they had royal assent. Oh yes, uh, royal, effectively royal ownership, uh, and the whole of the Thames. I mean, the, you go to in, now in London down the, the East London and the Dock area, the Docklands area of London used to be the the India Company, West India East India Company's docks that they built themselves. You know. Mm. And they built so the ships could sail up the Thames and load and unload in the middle of London. They moved from trade to territory, yeah. though, didn't they? They they became so big they became they began to believe their own publicity. I, I oh, suppose they were very successful at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now the interesting thing is that it is what you can carry. I mean, the human form, you have a, a lovely point there that actually it's not bad in long distance, not quick. But it can travel perhaps longer distances than many animals. Nothing, nothing can outdo the human over, and I've got an example in the book of travelling from St. Petersburg to, to Paris and the, and the footman. A footman just running at modest pace can just keep going forever. Whereas a horse you know, does one stage and then you've got to change horses. And if I was, I compare a single horse with a single person, the person will always get there first over a long distance. <laughs> and the Brits had people, the footman, the original British footman was a, uh, usually an Irishman who was hired to take messages around the country on foot. <laughs> um, yes, of course. Yeah. I think you, you had a story of a blind man who... Oh, one of the other road inventors was... Uh, uh, one of Mac McAdams' predecessors was a man called John Met Jack Metcalf, who was blind, and he knew about putting broken stones down, and he also knew how to get across swamps by putting branches in the swamps and floating the road across the swamp. And and his his local member was a man called Colonel Little, I think, and he was at Nairsborough. Nairsborough's uh, up near um, you, uh, Leeds. Quite a big long trip on foot, a week's trip on foot, and and um, I forget the exact date of it. Uh, Metcalf and, and Little both gave a presentation at the House of Parliament, and Little said, "Would you like to ride back in my coach?" And Metcalf, who was blind and never 
been to London before, so no, I'll, I'll walk back. And he got back three days before the coach because the coach got in swamped and caught in bogs and make mm. up just ask people where, how do I get to Nairsville or Leeds and, and <laughs> push in the right direction. The, the invention of iron was, well, the invention, the use of yeah. and uh, iron became absolutely critical. Rails, even before steam power. But, but much, much of that, he, iron was being made in China and India be, before Christ. Um, uh, so if you had a little furnace, you could... In, in the first iron came when you were refining copper, and there was iron... bubbles of iron floated in the copper. But if, until you had to make a proper furnace, you couldn't make proper amounts of iron. So first you had to develop first good furnaces, and, and there were lots of iron around Shropshire area in England, and there was also lots of uh, beer being brewed, and the beer brewers developed furnaces for brewing beer. And a guy, a local who owned an iron deposit, said, oh, that, that's a good way I can make more heat for iron. So the, uh, the brewing industry was a basis of the iron industry. But, but then they needed coal, so you needed coal for the iron. And then as, as the ironworks got bigger, you needed rail to move the stuff around. And the early, it was a very intestinous process because the the railways were moving coal. And by moving coal, it was the main customer. And the customer, main customer of the, of the coal was the ironworks. <laughs> and the ironworks were making the iron to build the railways and the trains. So the, the whole thing was, for 40 or 50 years, it was just a, a vicious circle in which the investors made a packet out of by investing, earning 25% at least a year of investing in this incestuous industry. You did say that investment mania, it, it was a time in the East India companies, I think the Dutch East India Company returned 48% yeah. of, of your investment on the first year or so. I mean, uh, the early railways were, were getting in that direction as well because they they were able to get customers that would they created new markets because uh, passenger markets freight markets land speculation they they owned the land a lot of railways uh, so that they made money out of the land they made money out of everything and di different to the, the big asset of the railways was that you could only get on and off at particular points whereas the road system you could get on and off wherever you... So the railways had a monopoly. I mean, as you say, they they were making 40 or... 50, I don't know, 50%. They certainly I think that was the East India Company yeah, in the shipping more, but yeah. And then, they, and then many of them went about 1840, many of them went broke because they over-invested mm. in railways that were useless. So useless once you've got... Once you sold the land, <laughs> that's just where the profits were. The rail, operating the railway was... <laughs> Less of a <laughs> well, that's true of today, yes, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Did, did governments at the time try or even come to grips with the implications of this um, a huge change in access and delivery? They didn't in England. In, in England, in particular, it was driven by promoters saying, "If we build this, like we solve the cotton to market problems." Uh, with this railway and this railway, so no, there were, and there was no national plan for where you know we need a this ra national network. So the British just 
total laissez-faire, but the European countries, by and large, saw what was happening in Britain and produced national plans and, and said, you know, we've got to have a proper network and so forth. So, did that slow it a little or did it...? Not, not in Europe because the, the market was still there, particularly the iron industries in, in uh, northern France and Belgium, uh, trade from Italy to the north, so was German getting the ports. So, yeah, there was a good, good pressures to, to have. And, and in America, where they um, to up, to developed the West, you know, you, the railways were the, the way they developed the West by saying if you build a railway, you can own the land along the railway sort of thing. It was huge in developing yeah. the West, wasn't it? Yes, it was a major factor. Because it was, and it, the, there was no government money. You know, private investors put the money up, built the railway, and flogged the land up. It becomes then not just a transport issue, but an issue of, you know, then having total control. As I say, the British East India Company ended up being the government of Bengal. Yeah. You know that uh, the potential to control was enormous, and we saw that in in the American railways by the end of the nineteen hundreds. The American railways was were anathema of the American public because they'd become a empire unto themselves, and everyone hated them and was uh, terrible things being said about them because they just dominated everything. It wasn't so bad in Britain because they had so many different companies. It was hard to have one company dominating yes. the way the big Americans and the Rockefellers and the like and the Carnegies. And it was also in the ironworks as well. So mm. um, the, pr- the problem is that they became, uh, you know, they gave away money, yet they controlled the system and uh, suppressed many people in many ways. But then some largest doesn't necessarily make up for it you've got to have a government understanding to try and bring out what is community benefit from the ground up one of the my conclusions in the book <coughs> when i looked at all these people and all the, the great inventors and innovators none of them knew where the future was going to of their product was going so if you'd said to any of them if you know i'm a politician now what law should I put in place to make sure that your invention doesn't do any harm, the inventors wouldn't have been able to give them any sort of good advice at all. No matter how brilliant the inventor was, uh, I mentioned um, Daimler and Benz and um, uh, lots of others I could mention in the same breath, Stevenson's in England on the railways, they would have given you the wrong advice because they couldn't see forward. And my conclusion from the book is we, as humans, we've got no track record of predicting the future, so we need to hedge our bets. You know, we ought to say to, we as engineers ought to say to policymakers, here are the probabilities. We think, you know, thirty percent likely here, fifty percent here, ten percent here. Put some effort into each. You know, um, the current debate about climate change. You might say, well, seventy percent probably right, but put some money into that. Put some money into the alternatives. Mm. Because we don't know. Um, mm. we, we as humans have no bankable track record of predicting the future. 
I once gave a talk on the future where I used cartoons as an example, and the Jetsons are appalling. It's just what we do now, up in the air. Yes. You know, it had no vision to how that might change. Now, you were, I think, the founder of the the intelligent tra uh, transport systems um, uh, committees and, and groups and institutes. In in, a, in Australia, I was one of the founders of this, this society, which still exists, and I was on the board of the international ones. Um, it came about because I was very heavily involved in in the road industry, and I'd realised with traffic control systems there was a future for linking them, and we got involved in that. and And it's a it's a curious story because I was just trying to get consistent so the tra traffic signal suppliers around the world were making compatible equipment. And there was some meeting at the OECD, and they said, "Oh, we've, the car industry wants to get um, common standards for the future." When this this was 1980 or 1990, when you know, what we're talking about today happens, and we better set up a committee under the OECD or ISO, the International Standards Organization, to sort this out. And and there was a car block from Japan and from America and from Europe, and they couldn't agree to someone to chair one of the, this committee and I saw oh, someone the Australian guy said oh there's some guy in, in Australia who been talking to us about this sort of thing he could why don't you put him in <laughs> for a few quite a probably for almost a decade I was I was chairman or deputy chair of a group that tried to produce the standards that made what's happening today possible mm. and that made me aware that at least in Australia we needed a group that, that did this and, and I was president of RACV then and we set up a company called Intelematics that's still operating quite profitably that makes some, a lot of the software behind the map mm. guidance systems you buy. And that's a product invented here in, in Australia and we sell it around the world. Mm. Had a modest amount of vision. <laughs> you know, seeing two or three years ahead is often enough. Yeah. As long as you've got a, a, you, know, you understand your license, your technology. Mm. I met some at the ITS Summit in Sydney oh, good. from Intelematics, yes, they're, they're really very, very keen. It is then perhaps engineers having an element of involvement in the conversation that your story was that everyone carried too much baggage yeah. and perhaps someone from Australia, perhaps we've done that in other areas, can come with out Without the, the baggage, yes. I think that, that does help. Not you're right. Not to have the baggage. Not to have a preconception that you want a decision that goes this way because that'll help your local industry. We didn't have a local industry. The other thing is that you know we again, perhaps like all your stories, that the public mind tends to focus on one thing. Intelligent transport systems is not just autonomous cars. No. In, in your case, it's how we use the road system and yep. so on. Do you think we could lose sight of that? Do you think we might become fixated? I think I think so. I think what you need to do is is spell out your, your objectives quite clearly ahead as a society. And say, you know, is this moving us towards these objectives? What sort of suburbs do we like? What sort of, how do we want to live our lives? And and if you have that, then you can make these delivery processes that point at your objectives. But we don't often articulate, and we see it today when we talk about town planning, 
or land use controls, well, what sort of cities are we try, do we want? Mm. Do we have a consensus about that? And, and one, I, I remember when Barry Jones was very active in politics, he got the government to set up a group that looked at future population. And they said the future population would be far less than it actually is today. But even to get the debate going about, well, what sort of population do we want in the future? How big will Australia be? As an engineer, how can you design something if you don't know how big your market's going to be? And we have no vision yet. Of pop- and if we knew we have population issues, we'd have land, we'd put land use controls that delivered those populations and we'd develop ways of living that may cater for those, those numbers of people. The engineer is again, right back to the beginning of when we started, has parameters of performance. Yep. It's not a lot of land use planning is often aspirational drawings yes. rather than I don't want to make it mechanical or, or ugly or, or no. but it is a good thing is access to people and not just a, as uh, this is the train timetable yeah. but how we might get there and move freight and, and how much green how much food do we want to grow ourselves and how much open space do we want and hmm. All those sort of things. Are you optimistic about the future? I think, if, well, if you look back at the past, we've, all, we've always had progress. It's been a long while in human history since we've, you know, post-Romans, there was some, when the, the Dark Ages were, Dark Ages were an issue of going backwards. But since the Dark Ages, it's been a steady progress. I mean, I've, I've lived my life with the threat of nuclear warfare around you know since I, I did a PhD in America and uh, my, my research was being funded by a body called the Office of Naval Research and we were part of the research was directed deep sea submarines for the because the, the Americans could send submarines in the canyons of the Atlantic towards Russia without the Russians detecting that was the theory and we were not based far out of Washington. This was in the nineteen six early nineteen sixties, and of course the the Kennedy Khrushchev play came. So we were being told things you know, like uh, have a week's amount of food in your apartment and uh, and ridiculous. I still remember how ridiculous. One thing was uh, if there is a nuclear attack and you're in your car, wind the windows up. I'm thinking, shit, <laughs> is that the depth of... <laughs> uh, the last thing I'd do is as a nuclear attack is worry about winding the car windows up. But, yeah. So, I, I mean, I've lived my life with that and and I still worry that we, you know, we could destroy ourselves. Hmm. Climate change might do it, but nuclear warfare is probably more, a quicker way to end in uh, societies. Your work with the ITS, it's, it's been said now that we've lost the ability to do bilateral type conversation into space, for example, how, you know, that must be a classic example of what do we want to get out of it mm. and we don't want it to be a battleground. Uh, you know, that we've, we've lost that by, well, we're losing that bilateral discussion rather than, you know, I have an idea, stand aside or lose a limb. Yeah. Mm. And I think the things, the impacts are more widespread. You know, the, the 19th century ideas were local in their initial implementation, but they never got beyond uh, beyond the local community for you know mm. bends and and um, 
Daimler invented a motor car down in southwestern Germany. It took about 10 years for it to get out of that area and into, into the nearby manufacturing hubs in, in France. But it's moving so much quicker now. Quicker now. So, yeah, thing mm. change, the space of change is certainly quicker and the awareness is quicker of things. So. Mm. And, and Britain lost it, didn't they? I mean, it's not as if it's going to go on forever. And, uh, yeah, and the thing that we haven't mentioned in this talk is, and I've explored in the book, is why Britain in the second half of the 19th century lost all their leadership to the Germans and the French, Germans in particular. And the, the, the single biggest issue is they had a terrible education system. They had, they were still educating people in the classics. You know, and people could go to work in a engineering place and their background was they did, they'd done five years of Latin and they could read Plato and, and they had, whereas the French had, uh, the, the Germans, so I've been mentioning Benz and Daimler a lot in, in this hmm. discussion, but both of them went to, they were brought up in, a, in modest families, no wealth at all, but they were sent to local schools and then they were sent to local technical college and then they had a, an apprenticeship system where they, and both of them actually had apprentices in a, um, firms that made steam engines. And then they went back and Benz's father was a steam engine driver. And, and both of them had seen that a man called Lenoir in Paris had invented a, 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 an internal combustion engine. They saw that in 1850 and 30 years later they were able to translate it into a product. But they'd been educated. They were, you know, they'd, they'd had a, the, the British people in the same period were still being taught Latin and Greek. And that might have been useful, but for some, you know, if, if a tourist in Rome or Italy, but it had no other relevance. And it, it shows up in all the English inventions in the second half of the 19th century were, were minor modifications. And the, the locomotive steam engine is a great example that all their improvements in the steam locomotives were done in house. So there was no documentation, there was no, there were patents taken, but it, took 20 years before anyone saw the patterns. Whereas the, the stuff going on in France and Germany was being seen by everyone. Mm. And that allowed people to um, make, you know, well... Compe there was competition on yeah. a daily basis. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. And people would see X's product, oh, who's done this? I better do that. Or, or a man called Otto had a uh, patent on, what he thought, a patent on four-stroke and two-stroke engines. Everyone knew what his patent was, what his invention was, and they were looking for ways to get around it. And when the patent lapsed, bang, opened another door. Uh. It is an environment that is not suppressed by politics as much, or, or even you know, media images. Yeah. I think I think uh, you're right there. It, it was, do you give incentives to the locals to make money? And the good thing Britain had running for it is had an excellent patent system. So if you had a good invention in Britain, you could make money out of the invention. And that, that was a, the best thing they had running for them in the second half of the century. And, but the, the rest of Europe caught up with that and said, oh, we better start having patents as well. Hmm. But the, the other thing that Lee Britain had, and one of the French bureaucrats 
made the comment that in in France all we do we were supposed to be in a post revolution of democracy, but all we do is have more head office regulations. In Britain it's supposed to be a um, run by the aristocracy, but they let everyone make money. <laughs> a free you know, free uh, trade was and free uh, free to do what you sort of make your money was a great asset in Britain. Hmm. But it also there is that balance, isn't there? You you make money, or you serve customers, or you serve the community. Yeah. You need to have a system. If you concentrate on any one of those, you don't get the others. Oh, that's true. That's true. And you got to hit the market eventually. And and that was the story with the motor car at the end of the nineteenth century. It hit the market, and the market started saying, "This is what we want." Hmm. Uh, one of my points earlier on uh, I want to emphasize is that these guys were making cars that would travel at 100 miles per hour, 160 kilometers an hour at that time on roads that you could barely take a horse down at 10 miles an hour. No one said, well, that's a bit, it's a disconnect somewhere in here. You know? <laughs> Why were any of these machines loose on a system they weren't planned for? Mm. And it wasn't until the 1930s that people started making rules about how these high-speed vehicles should travel on on inherited roads. Mm. I think it was a politician who was the first death on a railway, wasn't it? He, oh, he <laughs> the famous it's a famous story. Huskinson. He was he was going to be the on, on that first railway, the one I mentioned that brought the um, from Liverpool that the Stevensons developed, and Huskinson was. Came the next prime minister, all rumoured, and the Duke of Wellington was the current prime minister. And people were only, we talked about this earlier. People were only used to travelling at walking or horse riding speeds, and no and and as humans, I've got to interrupt myself here. We one of the things we've evolved without is ability, no ability to judge speed, because nothing travelled, nothing in our world travelled at speed, so we can't. We learn how to judge speed very slowly, and our kids learn it. You know, take it to the teenagers if they can judge speed on the footpath. Anyway, going back to the story, Huskinson had two trains. There was a, a double track system that they'd built. Stevenson had built. The, the Duke of Wellington was in one side in an all-night carriage, and the future prime minister was trying to park the other side. So he, the, the future prime minister, thought he'd walk and shake the duke's hand. The train could be seen coming in the distance, but it was a horse and coach. You, know, you got half a day before it hit you. <laughs> he only had five minutes, and the train was over top of him and smeared him over the track. Mm. And one of the out- it killed him, of course. He was everyone was shocked. One of the outcomes to that which had an effect is, is the Brits then passed a law saying every railway has to be fenced. Which is not the right for roads. That was great for the um, the train industry because you could only take you had to go through the stations and loading bits. Um, but it was quite expensive. When they they imported British law to Australia, the one of the famous examples of Australia is the the railway from Broken Hill, effectively to Port Augusta, taking the ore down. Mm-hmm. Was going to have to be fenced if we go to English law, so they changed it to call it a tramway. <laughs> you didn't have to have a fence along a tramway. Oh, this thing went from Broken Hill to Port Augusta. 
<laughs> I love how laws change things. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I was just in Tasmania where they had made a law you couldn't distill whiskey unless you distilled yeah, huge amounts yeah. simply because they didn't want backyards. But now the world's changed. Mm. But that's a, a different story. You, uh, humans have evolved, you were saying, of course, that they have peripheral vision. Yeah. That's that's different, isn't it? You want to, yeah, if you haven't tested your peripheral vision, you should, because if you don't, if this doesn't work, you're probably uh, on the board near-death experience. <laughs> but you should be able to look ahead and move your finger at right angles. You know, uh, my interview was not even going to try in case you, <laughs> case you fails. And see, although you're looking ahead, you can see your fingers moving at right angles. And this is because, your peripheral vision, it's because we were involved in a world where the threat was not something travelling at 100 miles an hour, but someone jumping out of the tree beside us. We were looking ahead, and, and so we had to be alert to instant... Uh, and we, no one was going to hit. We we're going to be killed by things other than being hit by a fast-moving, high-momentum object. So, and we've got no defence against heavy impacts. But that now comes into um, autonomous vehicles, which at the moment see very narrowly ahead. Whereas we have a system where merging may be a difficulty where the autonomous vehicle only sees it once the merge is almost on top of you rather than you and I who might see the slip lane approaching and a car on it approaching from the side. I wouldn't want to get in an autonomous vehicle that didn't have the capabilities you're describing. Merging and diverging are so fundamental parts of driving. And they're done very poorly by the current generation of drivers. But they're key characteristics of how we drive. So don't get in a vehicle that doesn't help you. Uh, my, my Volvo tells me if I'm about to hit someone, but it doesn't help merging or diverging. <laughs> so we've, we've got to, again, have a breadth of understanding. I, yeah, think. I, I think there we've got to look at what the traffic engineers are doing with with the sensing merging and diverging of many freeways now, as you're entering them, they have these lane control, you know, one car every second sort of thing. Mm. Now that's, that's sort of telling you at least the system detected is a gap you can move into in the lane that you want to move into. And that sort of thing you could easily imagine the future vehicles being on top of. You know, the communication from vehicle to vehicle would do that sort of thing. Yes. Not whether you're going to hit them, but whether there's a space between them that you want to know about. Mm. Um. The other thing of traffic engineering and modern technology is at the moment we're getting a lot of information can be sent to the driver, but a lot of good information isn't necessarily helpful. It all depends on how it's been delivered. And signposting has learnt the art of simplicity, clarity, hopefully not overdoing it and even things like reinforcement so that when you go through an intersection it might then say well it's 200 k's to camera so you know yep. you're on the right road right so so we've got to listen to the traffic engineer i think yeah. in many ways mm. yeah. so there's, there's hope for that <laughs> oh i think yes i think there is i think you've got to uh, and the, the people doing these you've got to realize what the 
the wider picture is. That I mentioned, I was on one of those international committees, and this one of the first battles we had was on on speed, because the non the non uh, the electronics people on our committees, so oh, speed of vehicle you know, seventy five point three kilometers an hour. That's what it is. And uh, people like me had to say, well, look, that's only one speed you're interested in. We're interested in the speed of the uh, other rest of the traffic. We're interested in the trip speed for one reason, the instant speed for another, all these other, you know, there's six different speeds we can have for that one vehicle uh, and whether it's changing or not. So, so and people, people, see, people see the world in different ways. You've got to force a world view. With big data, we're often just getting the average as huge numbers, but no one's average. No. You know, and there's a whole range of different systems. You're writing another book. Yes. Right. I'm about it, it's, it's easy today to write pseudo histories because there's so much online. And like in, in, in The Artisan of Power and other books, so when I started writing, you want a book, find a, a manuscript that's in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. You've got to write a, a, a careful letter in French. Maybe a year later, you'll get a, a copy of it that you then got to get read and pseudo translate and find the words you're interested. In. Now you go online, and the things on in front of you in thirty seconds. It's all been. If you're lucky, it's also been digitised, and you can type in your word in search, and there's goes with this 500 pages of ancient French and gives you where the words are. You know? So there's no excuse anymore to go not to see original documents. And I, I'm looking at, at one, I'm, I'm writing this history of pavements and I'm looking at French stuff about, there's a very corrupt asphalt industry in France in the 1840s of all things. And some wonderful stuff being written then but until now, no one's seen because it was so tedious. To, and now it's, they're online. So, you are a historian, though, aren't you? In you are looking at cause and effect that is not just the coefficient of friction. Uh, yeah, yes. I think I think you have to. You know, if you don't live, learn the lessons of history, you're doomed to repeat them. Mm. And so, you know, what lessons are there there, and how do they reflect on how we live our lives today? Mm. So when, when I do these things, I'm always looking at, well, it's a nice story, but how's that, how will the reader be a better person <laughs> having read it? Yeah. Oh, well, that could bring in much more history into engineering, well, not, not in a dry sense, but yeah. in a understanding of going sideways. In Norse mythology, it was Odin who had the greatest horse, it had eight legs. Whereas, of course, you, you would immediately talk that it depends on the road. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's got a lot more factors to yeah. it. And, uh, and so, yeah, we've got to be able to embrace that in the environment in which we exist, which includes politics yep. as well. When's the book coming out? Oh, that, well, I just do these things as a hobby. So I like to do a couple of hours a day. So I think I'll have the text finished in six months or so mm. but it takes it takes longer to get someone to publish a book than to write it mm. I mean p people will publish a book if you pay them and you say you know oh well, here's ten thousand dollars will you take my this thing of mine and print it and 
pretend it's a book. But that that harnessing of power took me a couple of years before I got a publisher who would who would publish it under their name and do a good job on it. Mm. Uh, it's easy to get things online and you know, mm. print and demand and stuff. Mm. I wrote a, a history. My first serious history was a, a world history of roads. And that for that was nineteen ninety two, and it's the publisher of that still prints on demand. And I'm pleased to say that people still buy them on demand. So the ways of the world, ways of the world, is history of roads. Lovely. Yeah. I was talking to some motoring journalists the other day. I referred to it and gave mentioned really? it was some just some lovely stories that come from it. I think that's the other thing. If you're not a historian, you're prepared to. Um, see some humour in what you're describing you know a lot of historians take it all to it's their business so you can't be serious about it hmm Um, the ways of the world just had some lovely snippets yeah that is not trying to define the world but you might reflect on and I think I think you're right and I think in 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 the harnessing of power I put illustrations in because I think the illustrations you might not read the text but all of a sudden you think oh that's how things work. I've got a, have you seen the one of the signal box? No. I'll try to find it, the one of the signal box, if I can. Oh, there it is. This, I'm showing you this <laughs> picture of, in the early days of the railways. It's a huge, it's a picture of huge signals above the railway uh, line. And the uh, top picture. Yeah. And the bottom picture is the levers, and the one man has about a hundred levers that he's, he works to operate all these points. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and that tells me more than a whole chapter about things. You know, I look yes. at that and I, shit, that's how it was. You know. <laughs> it brings a bit of realism. And, and, they, and the 19th century did these wonderful lithographs. Mm. So you, did, you do get good illustrations all out of copyright. Hmm. Uh, author's delight <laughs> <laughs> and it just shows you how it's moved and ultimately of course now we're doing away with signals and might do it via the internet That's via, right. so what my children may think is obvious has come through a long hard road if you pardon the pun it ha- yeah that's true and, and uh, the other thing I liked about the 19th century is they had people with good senses of humour drawing drawings. <laughs> so you got, you know, people who did make jokes out of what they were drawing. And yeah. I, can't, uh. I can't easily find one at the moment. Mm. Well, Max, you say you work an hour or two a day. I've taken <laughs> today's work. Day, yeah. I, I, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure, David. Thank you for the sensible interview. <laughs> Are We There Yet? Transport into the Future is produced by Driven Media. Driven Media specialise in communicating technical and scientific information to professionals and the public and also facilitates planning and behaviour change in groups and organisations. You can send comments or suggestions to feedback at drivenmedia.com.au. All the participants have agreed to the recording and distributing of their comments.